Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the 90s and 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Margot Poupard. And I'm your other host, Emily Beijing. Okay, listen up. If you're dating somebody who doesn't recognize this sound, I'm Kurt Lauder with MTV. News. I really hate to tell you, but that person is too young for you. Jail. I mean, just today we got like the most MTV news headline of all time. Francis Bean Cobain marries Tony Ho- marries Tony Hawk's son, Riley, oh and it's officiated by Michael Stipe of R.E.M., who is her godfather. Godfather. <laughs> but in a world that increasingly begs the question, how, Sway? Today we're going to talk about two legacy news outlets that ended this year but defined a lot of our lives. MTV News and Vice News. I mean, I don't really have any questions to start us off. Um, mostly, I just wanted to like talk about our feelings and memories around MTV and Vice. Any moments that stand out to you or anchors or segments that changed you or like your perspective on politics or pop culture? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's one of those things, right? Like both of them resonate so much with our generation because I think it was the first time people were seeing how journalism could be done by younger people of our generation and be done very well and cutting edge um, and really bring up topics that weren't being covered by many mainstream outlets at the time. I think it really at least for me personally, empowered me to feel like I could have an opinion on politics yes. because it was never pandering and it it treated teens and young adults as if, you know, we're not brain dead. And I think that it really seeing other people my age um, or let, that like I felt like I could identify with, like even like in a camp counselor, camp counselor e way kind of made me feel like, oh, like I can get this and I can verbalize why I think George W. Bush is bad and why we shouldn't be in Iraq and all all of these all of these stories that were starting to come to a head when you are starting to edge even closer to the age where you can even actually vote. Yes. And obviously history class is lacking in a lot of ways and doesn't necessarily always help you to inform yourself for right now. And so MTV really kind of like gave me the language to I shout down this girl in my government class who was just parroting like Fox News talking points about George W. Bush one day. So, you know, a sign of things to come in in my future, too. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is I think it got really legitimized when it started winning so many awards. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know about MTV News specifically, but because I, I covered Vice, but the number of Peabody, Emmy, you know, Pulitzer Prize, like, that these this media group is stacked with awards like despite everything that went on behind the scenes and I'll get to that when I talk about vice like there is some of the most important journalism in, in terms of media digital journalism video journalism that's been done in the last 10 years was done over at vice it's just 
I remember when awards used to mean something. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I really feel like um, – because like BuzzFeed was we- winning Peabody's up until they shut down like earlier mm-hmm. this year too, right? Like it's so I mean, insane to me that award-winning journalism cannot be sustained. It's obviously like a little troubling when you think about it. But totally. to circle back to like MTV and Vice, I think what also sort of made those channels and their news pieces relevant to us was truly like the the anchors had especially when it came to mtv they had sort of like an instant credibility that i think is very difficult to find nowadays especially with culture the way that it be yeah i wouldn't necessarily say like oh you get like canceled because i again i don't i generally don't believe in that but like it is so much more likely to see something come up like old tweets or old pictures or whatever because yeah. we've been living online for so long that make you question their ethics and their morality and their moral compass to be a trusted person. Whereas like, you know, I, I gen- you know, I've had a boner for Gideon Diego forever. And it's like not a secret oh, sure. on this podcast. <laughs> but like <laughs> to see someone who was essentially like graduating college when I was finishing up high school and to and to feel like someone my age could even or around my age even be trustworthy was like such yeah. a huge and like there's something about Kurt Loder's presence that I don't want to say paternal, but just seems like a sort of like no nonsense sort of guy that, you know, is just going to mm-hmm. fucking tell you how it is. And I feel like and even down to like some of the VJs, like you really trusted Carson Daly or like Dave Holmes. Right. Because they knew what was up. They were in music. They were on yeah. the post. Like what what made an anchor so um, easy to identify with now is something that could or then is now something that could potentially come back up and like bite you in the ass. Like, you know, you and I are always hesitant to stand stand anyone let alone a man so like it's so interesting to see yeah how culture has changed in that regard to your point you brought up earlier like you could see yourself in these journalists because they weren't that much older than you i mean the the last 10 years over at vice news those journalists are our age they're all people who graduated college Mm -hmm. in the last (coughs) excuse me 10 to 15 years and it's um it's amazing to see how they are kind of at the cusp of what journalism has become in many ways, which is outside of just traditional print media and traditional like television media that they are on streaming platforms, that they are putting together more digital experiences. It's really interesting to have seen that evolution happen so quickly and right in front of us as we grew up. I mean, even as I was revisiting old MTV news clips, I was really reminded of how much of like a news program it was trying to be. I really feel like there were like I watched Cindy Crawford interview David Spade and Adam yes. Sandler and one of Adam Sandler's like he still writes for Adam like to this day and and Chris Farley and how interesting that was and how that was so cutting edge to have a supermodel be interviewing other people because she had like a long it wasn't like a long, but like a year or two where she was hosting and doing correspondent House pieces for style. MTV. Yeah. yeah. And it was like a huge deal that she was even yeah. doing that. But even like the like more fluffy segments that they did, like taking Brittany Murphy to a blockbuster. I only mentioned that because that clip also recently like resurfaced online about Brittany Murphy um, loving Never Been Kissed and like all that jazz and also The Shining. Um, these how how much they structured it like that and how much it reminded me of uh, Linda Ellerby's uh, like the kids Nick version news. of this and Nick how news. you graduated from that to MTV News and how the timing there's like such a perfect time and place chemistry there that really benefited us in being like more informed and yes. honestly having better media liter- literacy I think because of it. Well, you bring up, it's, I'm glad you brought that up, Margot, because all of these, com- all of the things we're talking about today are either owned by Viacom or have some tie to Viacom or Viacom money like tied to it. So MTV is obviously owned by Viacom, which own Nick News, which is almost the feeder into MTV News, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and own Nickelodeon. And then Viacom also had a stake in, um, had a partnership with Vice News. And in fact, Vice had a one season show on MTV before eventually years later going to HBO and then funding their founding their own channel um, Vice. But before that had a partnership with MTV. So it's very it's very telling that you brought up, you know, all of these things were tied to Viacom, who had the foresight 
to kind of invest in this type of media for younger uh, a younger audience early on. So kudos to them. Well, personally, what I think is saddest about the end of these like legacy news media outlets is it really begs the question, does news media even give a shit about young people? The answer is no. Um, And I understand that we as a culture are more online than ever and that people younger than us typically get their and even us too get their news from TikTok or podcasts or Twitter. But that problem becomes twofold an issue where one is that misinformation is abundant and aplenty and there is this distrust of legacy media companies and that's like an at an all-time high and like I'm not trying to talk about Israel Palestine per se but it is worth noting how many people have pushed back against the propaganda type reporting that is currently coming out around them around that topic and how maybe there is still a need for like a cool quote unquote news site that speaks to the next generation or have them like fed into this news pipeline that we were so lucky to catch the wave of unless you think do you think we have evolved past the need of having like one source of quote unquote truth i don't really know the answer but i just thought i would ask it i almost think in some ways it's like when we're given more options to try to cut through the noise and try to find the right story, it almost becomes more difficult to find kind of that straight, uh, as unbiased of an opinion as you can get opinion. And I do think it's really telling that this year, MTV News shut down, BuzzFeed News shut down, and Vice filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So any of these groups that did try to cut through the noise and give us these, you know, although albeit biased at times, but somewhat unbiased views or try to kind of cut through that noise um, that cater to our generation uh, have all shut down or are really seriously reconsidering how they operate. Uh, well, before we get into more bummer news, let's let's wind the clock back to the heydays. I think I'm going to start with MTV only because I believe it's been around longer yep. than Vice. Mm-hmm. So what feels like, honestly, a subplot from 30 Rock in May of this year, Paramount Global, which is the parent company of MTV slash Viacom, completely closed down MTV News after 36 plus years as part of a larger layoff and restructuring. But it wasn't always sad layoffs and shutdowns. No. In 1987, there was hope. There was a single show, The Week in Rock, hosted by MTV News employee number one and former Rolling Stones writer Kurt Loder. Uh, when it started to get closer into the 90s, the opening uh, title credit was a, the riff of Megadeth's Peace, Peace Cells, which I always oh, thought yeah. was interesting. Great Eventually, line. MTV News became a full-blown news outlet for Gen X and millennials who were tired of CNN and other traditional news broadcasts. They would go on to add other car- correspondents in addition to Kurt Loder, like Tabitha Soren, Suchin Pak, Gideon Yego, Allison Stewart, who all covered music, pop culture, politics, and other topics with an eye to speaking to the younger generation that tuned into MTV, rather than doing like network, traditional network evening newscasts. MTV News was a production uh, division of MTV, and the service was available in the U.S., and then they eventually expanded to have MTV's global network each have a localized version there with an online news team as well eventually. But one of the biggest pieces of news that they broke that ostensibly put them on the map and made others take them seriously was their political news coverage of 1992's American presidential elections and through their first campaign effort to get young people out to vote called Choose or Lose, which is very different. Well, not very different, but is different than Rock the Vote, which is more musician led versus like political or political journalistic journalism led. MTV continued choose or lose for other presidential elections outside of 1992. For example, it kept going up until 2008 with Barack and uh, Hillary Clinton, who both appeared on an MTV special to discuss the Iraq war. But they made a news for for themselves also providing essential news and interviews with entertainment's biggest stars like Madonna, Prince, Tupac, and focusing their coverage on what people were paying attention to. And They most notably became a trusted breaking news source on April 8th of 1994 when they broke regular programming after they had the confirmed death of Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain and Loder broke the news to the channel's viewers. A quick moment there. I recently was in Seattle and I went to the Museum of Pop Culture where, of course, they have an entire Nirvana exhibit because it makes sense. The band's from Seattle. Um, Naturally. Yeah. Created most curated mostly by Chris Novoselic. But what's interesting is like watching uh, Gen X parents with their kids in that exhibit and hearing these kids be like, who, who is this? And their parents telling them about it. It was just like, I had this really surreal moment. 
And one of those parents was my dentist, I'm sure, because she told me about how she took her kids to Seattle and like dragged them to like Nirvana landmarks and took them to the pop culture museum. <laughs> it, it was and for me, Margo, I've thought about it and I was like, you know, if I have kids one day, like who will be like if there's a Heath Ledger exhibit or like some I don't know. But like, you know what I mean? Like someone like that. It's and the maid be... who found his body <laughs> decided that it was a better use of her time to call Mary Kate Olsen multiple times instead of 911 Emily Jr. <laughs> oh my God. But it was just I, it was just me realizing like, wow, this is like a real moment where, you know, the parent has to tell the kid who someone is in a museum. Like that was just I had a bit of an existential crisis that day is all I'll say. And I'll let you go get back to it. So sorry, but had to had to interrupt with that moment. No, I, I totally understand as um As I've told you the story going to see Jack White last year where it was all like Gen X and older millennial parents with their like 10 to 13 year old kid explaining the significance of Jack White in his career and being like, oh, my back. Everyone, my back hurts. Don't look at me. Anyway, back to MTV News. They created some pop culture moments themselves, none bigger than also in 1994 when they had President Clinton appear on MTV's Enough is Enough. It was a town hall addressing violence in America. The special was led by Tabitha Sorensen and Allison Stewart, and it saw them as well as members in the in the audience asking questions of Bill Clinton about fighting crime and balancing personal freedom with social responsibility. But this section is actually most notably remembered as somebody in the audience asking President or former President Bill Clinton, Mr. President, the world's dying to know, is it boxers or briefs? That question was actually planted by MTV, by the way. But anyway, it stayed as an inside joke through the 2008 election of them asking Hillary and Barack that too. At its peak, beyond covering pop culture, MTV News was just part of the culture. Um, From the words of Chris Connell himself, quote, we were targeting youth culture, a young audience that wasn't being served by mainstream media. During the 2000 election, we did a thing called Where Were You at 22? And we talked to all of the presidential candidates about what their lives had been like between the ages of 18 and 22. And everyone from Pat Buchanan to Al Gore to John McCain, who had the most remarkable life of any of them. That was the great thing about MTV. You could talk to the audience in a unique way because the audience is very specific. The choose or lose team or the street team did such a great job. That's where Gideon came from, Gideon Yego, and a whole bunch of other talented people. The division faced downsizing in the 2000s and the 2010s, but throughout the 2000s, MTV News published... Sorry, I wanted to give myself enough editing space there. MTV News published their digital editorial content on their website, on Twitter, and on YouTube and Facebook, with MTV programming updates probably just letting you know how many episodes of Ridiculous you could expect that week. And they started to aggregate some of their music and pop culture news. In November of 2015, they hired the former editorial director of Grantland, Doug, uh, or sorry, Dan Fearman, who, of course, introduced a new direction for the news department. Mostly, he just made it more like BuzzFeed RIP and Vice Double RIP. And by June of 2017, they decided to restructure its new division. Or sorry. They decided to restructure its news division again with a greater focus on video, laying off much of their editorial staff. See, this is what happens when you let a bunch of tech bros come in and fuck shit up because they have no creative vision or insight. But anyway, around this time, especially over MTV, they started to create less and less of their own content, a word I really hesitate to use. And mostly they just started re-uploading old clips of, you know, like I said, Cindy Crawford interviewing Adam Sandler instead of generating or creating their own news stories. Well, actually, that's not totally true. In 2018, MTV News began producing daily updates on Twitter titled MTV News colon You Need to Know. Later, MTV would repurpose this You Need to Know as a show that evolved just as like a digital series on trending topics from pop culture to social justice issues, which honestly made it kind of hard to find true old clips of MTV News (laughs) because it's often mislabeled as MTV News You Need to Know. Now, however, amid the larger upheaval in the entertainment business, Paramount was looking to cut costs, and MTV News is one of the pieces that just didn't seem to fit with their larger strategy. According to Comscore, MTV drew 6 million monthly visitors to their flagship website in March, only up slightly from 5.6 million that same month a year earlier, which is how we ended up with the shuttering of MTV News officially uh, in in May of this year. 
But here are some quotes from a Hollywood, Hollywood Reporter article that ran when MTV News was shutting down early, earlier this year. It's an oral history of the MTV News team at the height of their powers, or as I've titled it, they were there, it was rare. From producer Ocean McAdams, she says, quote, I think the legacy is in the people. I came up with a generation of writers, producers, and reporters who really built something incredible and then went on to kind of define media. I don't think it's happenstance that Joseph Patel produced an Oscar-winning documentary, Summer of Love. He he came up as an MTV news reporter. I don't think it's chance that Sway is one of the most important voices in hip-hop. He came up in MTV news as well. Former news staffer Jem... Aswad was the executive editor of Variety. Nina L. Diaz came up in MTV News, and she's the head of content at Paramount, which begs the question, girl, what did you do? <laughs> and David Searle Renick was producing some of the great TV over at Radical Media. This is just a whole generation that came up in MTV News, which is an interesting thing to think about because you see that sort of like replicated across other parts of the entertainment business of like, like in comedy per se, like there are so many people who all know each other because they did Second City or UCB or they started in stand up or they took the same writing class and you guys just kind of all follow each other for like the rest of your life kind of unintentionally. Yeah, I think that's very true. It's interesting to see that it's uh, ultimately these are the places where people get their feet wet in uh, the beginning of their careers. Yeah. I mean, John Norris goes on to elaborate. There are different paths for each of us. Like, Alison Stewart is still on NPR. Tabitha is now primarily a visual artist. She married um, the guy who wrote Moneyball and Big Short, Michael Lewis. Kurt oh, Loder yeah. went on to ride more movies. Gideon Diego writes for TV. And everybody's just sort of gone on to do different things, but still in the writing entertainment world, mostly. Kurt Loder says, I think it's it was the end of an era when I left and other people left in 2005. I look back upon that time as being a lot of fun. But now that the whole thing has gone under, it's very much like CBGBs when it closed. Nobody had been to CBGBs in decades, but everyone got very weepy when it closed. I just thought that was a very Kurt Lodery <laughs> quote yeah. to go out yeah. on. But like most things in life, especially when it comes to fond memories or a job you used to have, the best thing is never the what, but the who. To borrow some language from our favorite podcast, Who Weekly, the who's of the MTV News section is what gave the show its staying power. And now I'm going to go in a short list, uh, somewhat in um, alphabetical order of memorable anchors. So we've got Serena Altschul, one-time stepdaughter to Patricia Altschul of Bravo's Southern Charm Matriarch. Yes. Serena used to work an after-school job in 1987 at Channel One News, a channel seen nationwide in high schools as an anchor slash reporter. Uh, nearly 10 years after, in 1996, she began to work for MTV News. She hosted the shows. She hosted, besides uh, MTV News, she hosted Unfiltered, if you remember that, with the UN capitalized, breaking it down, and also produced some parts of True Life. She worked at MTV as, in addition to working for, at CNN for a year, where she hosted a special on PCP. And after she left both positions, she was named a CBS News contributing correspondent in 2003. And since 2013, she has appeared on CBS Sunday Morning. Other fun stuff she's done since, she's played herself in a Jay-Z music video. She's also appeared as herself in Queen of the Damned and Josie and the Pussycats. Um, fun fact about Serena Altschul and Channel One News. So Channel One News was uh, was also where Lisa Ling got her start oh. as a teenager. And I believe maybe Anderson Cooper. I could be wrong on that one. But there are several famous anchors and journalists who got their start there. And I believe at my school, we played Channel One News, like maybe my freshman year of high school or something like that. Um, and I could be confusing it with something else. But like, I remember Channel One News was something that like got broadcasted in homeroom. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if Anderson Cooper was also a child anchor as well. <laughs> <laughs> Oakland native Sway Calloway was a locally known rapper and b-boy performer and even released independent albums with his friend and co-partner in all things creative, DJ King Tech. Uh, they signed with a major label in 1990, which led them to hosting a radio show together on KEML. In 2000, Sway was approached by MTV to join the network as a correspondent and became a regular reporter for music videos and news specials, including TRL and the hip-hop show Direct Effect, which we should add that to the list of things that we should talk about soon. Oh, Direct Effect. Definitely. And 106 in Park in its heyday. <laughs> In uh, September 2005, though, Sway decided not to renew his contract with MTV. However, in 2006, they won him back and he signed a contract that included the ability to bring in new projects to MTV, making him the first TV personality since Carson Daly to have such a deal. Carson Daly ended up turning down a similar contract before. 
Sway established the opportunity to produce some programming with King Tech on MTV and other, and also across some other Viacom channels, as uh, as well as continuing to host for MTV. He one of the things that he first got to host as part of this new deal was unfortunately Michael Jackson's death for the network. Sway. Uh, outside of MTV, has voiced himself in an episode of Boondocks. He's also become one of the most prominent voices in hip-hop criticism. And if you don't know the clip of Kanye shouting at Sway, how Sway, please pause this podcast right now and go educate yourself. My once future husband, Gideon Yego, by the end of Yego's senior year at Columbia, he had already he already had a full-time job at MTV. He began working for them in 2000. Uh, for the 2000 election at the age of 21, which is insane that they let a 21-year-old have that job. But initially, Yego worked primarily as a writer for the MTV News Department from about 2002 to 2003, and he produced the MTV News magazine The Wrap on MTV2. But as his career there progressed, he switched gears and began to focus on politics rather than music while working at, while still hosting on MTV News. My Man has worked on award-winning, award-winning documentaries on sexual health, 9-11, Afghanistan, hate crimes, the 2000 and 2004 elections, and the war in Iraq. These awards included 2003 Peabody for programming on MTV's Fight for Your Right, Protect Yourself sexual health campaign, a 2004 Emmy for MTV's Choose or Lose programming, 2006 Emmy nomination for web coverage of the 2005 earthquake in Kashmir. In 2005, Yego covered the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and the devastating earthquake uh, in Pakistan and India. Towards the end of his time at MTV, Yego devoted most of his time to covering issues surrounding the Iraq war and its effect on young veterans. In 2004, he told Charlie Rose he thought that the war was the top issue for young people in America. In his 2006 MTV special, Iraq Uploaded, he unintentionally helped change Pentagon policy, denying wartime access to social networking sites as MTV was the only non-file sharing or social networking site mentioned in the subsequent band. Yego also discussed Iraq Uploaded with Stephen Colbert in August of 2005 as part of like a promotional run. He left the network, though, in January of 2007, writing, quote, we are lucky to have an audience that treats us as peers, though it might be seductive to play the short game with their trust in return for stacked favors and immediate gains. Please keep fighting for them and thinking of them in the fine work that all you do. They deserve as much. Yego's writing has appeared in Spin, Rolling Stone, Vice magazines. Several of his pieces have later become the basis of documentaries, like his 2003 article, No no War for Heavy Metal became the basis of a Vice film, a 2007 documentary called Heavy Metal in Baghdad. Yego's piece for NPR's American Life about a teenage propagandist for Saddam Hussein also became uh, the topic for a segment in the second season of This American Life on Showtime. He now works as a TV writer, so maybe our paths will cross one day. I mean, he was on the newsroom. It was great. Love it. Only credible thing about the newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Connolly started in the 80s as a special music correspondent for Good Morning America, which involved him interviewing the music stars of the day. But after that, he spent 13 years at MTV from 1988 to 2001. He hosted pre-shows for MTV Movie Awards, and prior to that, The Big Picture, which was a weekly show that featured movie and TV reviews. But from 2000-2007, in the process of leaving MTV and starting a new part of his career, he was part of the ensemble hosts for the Academy Award pre-show. But all of these assignments were through ABC and had nothing to do with MTV. There was not really like a ton on Chris Connolly, which is kind of a shame. This was sort of like the best that I could pull from. But now to the absolute goat, Kurt motherfucking Loader. Loader likes to say he just, quote unquote, fell into this field, elaborating that his entire journalism background was, quote, in four weeks. That's it. Nothing else. You can learn journalism in four weeks. It's not an overcomplicated thing. It's very simple. I love his attitude. His most notable job before coming to MTV was his nine year, nine year run at Rolling Stone. Um, he started his nine year run at Rolling Stone in May of 79. Rockcritics.com have called him, quote, one of Rolling Stone's most talented and prolific feature writers. While he was there, he also co-authored Tina Turner's 1986 autobiography, I, Tina, and then contributed to the screenplay adaptation of the film, which is called What's Love Got to Do With It? Another thing, if you haven't seen that, like, go ahead, feel free to pause right now and just turn that on and, and watch that. That's a great movie. Although sad. Um, he joined MTV in 1987, again, as Employee number one of their host of their flagship news music news show. It was later expanded and renamed to just MTV News, in which he was an anchor and correspondent. His biggest moment at, on MTV, so to speak, was when he... 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Interrupted programming to break the news of Cobain's death. But he's not this super serious seasoned mus- music critic. He likes to have fun too. He has guest starred as himself on Keenan and Kel, that 90s show, Simpsons, Girlfriends, Duckmen, Saturday Night Live, and Portlandia. He also parodied himself in a South Park episode uh, called Timmy 2000. In 2016, Loder began hosting a music-based talk radio show on Sirius XM called True Stories. But Loder, I really love his definition of what news is. It's, quote, anything that's interesting, unquote. He's also very critical of new journalism and argues that it has been used as a rhetorical shield for lazy journalism. He believes that new technology has fragmented American culture to the extent that no cinematic or musical success can unify it, which I think we can all agree in the past couple of years that that's kind of more true than not. As, it, as music and culture once were able to do with bands like the Beatles. He also is like a huge supporter of copyright laws and generally considers himself to be supportive of new media despite his role in MTV once joking, quote, MTV is part of Viacom, which controls Paramount and so on and so forth. It's an evil empire. Um, even though I've concluded most of the segment with uh, Loader's philosophies on life, I will leave us with just one more. Um, This is more about like about what you should do if you're reporting on other people, which whenever I hear stuff like people get too personal in their um, one on one interviews of celebrity, I think about that girl who uh, interviewed Chris Evans that thought that she was like really on a date with him. (laughs) So Kurt Loader's advice is this. You shouldn't make friends. It's not a good thing to be friends with people you're in with your. It's not a good idea to be friends with people you're covering. There's just no point in doing it. It's tempting, but they're not going to consider you their friend anyway. They just know that you're somebody that can do something for them. So you shouldn't really flatter yourself that they want to be your buddy. They don't. They want you for some reason or other, and you just have to fend that off for all time. And you can cover, and you can't really cover people critically that you're friends with. How would that work? That would be bad. So just always keep that in mind. Also, uh, minimal bullet point king John Norris, he left MTV in 2008, but then appeared again in mid-2009 when he came back to talk about the death of Michael Jackson. But he is still actively a music and culture critic. He writes uh, for Esquire for the most part, as does Dave Holmes. Uh, But he recently had a piece in the Daily Beast where he um, interviewed an author who has a book about the dark side of the 90s, which he feels like he knows something or other about. And I would agree. And lastly, but definitely not leastly, Su Jin Pak. While she was going to University of California, Berkeley, go Bears, she was a poli-sci major. She was discovered when a producer of a PBS science show called Newton's Apple saw a tape of her. Following graduation, she was approached by ZDTV, which was a cable network devoted to tech and the internet. Hi, that bubble is about to burst. This is how you know what year it is. It's probably 2000. After a year of working on a show called Internet Tonight, though, which was like a daily half-hour show on ZDTV. She was recruited to be a correspondent on Cron, but looking to move on from San Francisco, she decided to to send in a tape to a little startup cable network called Oxygen, which remember when Oxygen was a fledgling channel? What a time. (laughs) After a year-long audition process with them, though, she was eventually hired as a host for the show Trackers and moved to New York. From there, MTV spotted her, and she was soon, quote-unquote, the first Asian face on MTV, which I hate to hear about a... A woman being the first of something this late in the game. But here we are. She covered MTV Movie Awards and the Sundance Film Festival for MTV and the MTV Music Video Awards. She also co-hosted with Kurt Loder the MTV's coverage of the pre-Grammy show. As a correspondent for MTV Daily News, she interviewed everybody you could possibly think to be popular at this time. Mariah Carey, NSYNC, Diddy, George Lucas, Jane's Addiction, Mary J. Blige, Billy Idol, Fred Durst. 
As recently <laughs> as 2012, she hosted Demi Lovato's colon, Stay Strong, um, EM dash the after uh, the the after show. Puck also hosted her own MTV documentary about multicultural people called My Life Translated. She also later narrated seasons of MTV's Cribs and True Life. But in 2008, she moved on from MTV and went on to host uh, a show on a channel that doesn't exist anymore. Um, the channel Planet Green, the show G Word, which was also co-hosted by a guy named Daniel Seberg. In 2010, though, Pac returned to MTV News and decided to give them another shot and hosted some VMA pre-show coverage. But nowadays, you can hear her co-host a very wonderful podcast with Kulat Vasiliak called Add to Cart, which is a really lighthearted chat with a new guest every week about our role in consumer our role in consumerism, how we participated and the feelings that kind of come up around it. And I was so delighted when that podcast was announced because I love Suchin Pak. She was like one of my favorite um, anchors on MTV News. So same. that is the legacy or part of it of MTV News. A lot of this will have quite a few parallels with Vice. I'm so, sure. Since uh, they, like you said, are closely related being, you know, siblings through um, through Viacom. Yes. So I went into this thinking, oh, Vice News, that's been around for a while, right? It turns out Vice News has only been around for about a decade. So I figured I'd do a little history of Vice Magazine and Vice Media as a whole. So let's just kind of banner this as Vice Media. Um, so Vice starts out, obviously, with the magazine, which was founded in 1994 in Montreal, Quebec, by Saroosh Alvi, Gavin McInnes, and Shane Smith as the voice of Montreal with a welfare grant from the Quebec government. Remember these names because these founders will take very different paths in life. They eventually changed the name to Vice in 1996 and was seen as an alternative to the more established alternative paper in Montreal, the Montreal Mirror. The magazine starts as a punk magazine that's really covering alternative scenes, publishes satire articles that probably wouldn't get published in 2023, that kind of ilk. But like many brands that skyrocket and later crash, this magazine and its initial popularity were built on bullshit. As is evidenced by this great New York Magazine profile Vice, uh, published on Vice during the Me Too era in 2018, uh, where the demise had started. Shane Smith essentially lied to a bunch of shops around North America about the magazine's circulation to get more stores to, interested in selling it and carrying it. And in the late 90s, he told a reporter that Richard Solinsky, or Solinsky, probably best known as being the founder of Autodesk, had invested in Vice. And while that was not true... Selinsky heard that and thought, hey, I should take a meeting with those guys for having that audacity and later invested $4 million in the magazine because it's the 90s, baby. He convinced the founders to move the magazine headquarters to New York in 1999, where he set them up with a swanky office, coffee machines, and all the cool things an office could have in 1999. <laughs> but the dot-com bubble destroyed Selinsky's fortune, which meant the team was out of an investment and out of an office. They eventually regained control of the magazine, moved HQs from Manhattan to Brooklyn and the Williamsburg area, and rebuilt the brand and publication using a lot of what cool media companies did in the 2000s, free or poorly paid labor, <laughs> because the reward for working advice was access to cool parties and events, and the founders knew that they had something when people started telling them they'd do whatever they wanted for free. The media company opened a UK branch in the early 2000s with Andrew Creighton and Andy Capper leading those offices. The magazine grew immensely in popularity because of its style of reporting on news and culture and the type of photography used. In a Vice issue, you'd see like child soldiers in a war-torn country with like smoking cigarettes alongside like a barely legal nude hipster girl that had been shot by Terry Richardson. It was all very alternative, but very controversial and uh, was never going to lead to a long, uh, a very long career or uh, circulation as a publication. In the mid-2000s, Vice moved on from being just a magazine to being a full-fledged multimedia company after getting some advice from director Spike Jones, who was friendly with the founders. In 2006, he they started VBS.TV, a digital video site funded with a $2 million investment from Viacom. Ding, ding, ding. This made them one of the first media groups to really invest in online video as a form of storytelling. Viacom is, as we just discussed, the parent company of MTV, and eventually Vice would produce a joint venture with the channel, who was then beginning its identity crisis in terms of being a channel that played less and less music videos. 
Ultimately, Vice, and more specifically Shane Smith, pitched itself to MTV as basically being what MTV had been. This guy, like the caucasity of this man who just was just like, (laughs) you're fucking lucky enough to get to work with us. Um, And that he believed that MTV needed them to be considered relevant again with the young crowd. Vice's MTV show only lasted a season, however, because there's still a basic cable network who has to respond to advertisers, many of whom pulled out when they aired segments on certain topics such as tech sex dolls. The mid-aughts also came with the additional hiccup of Shane Smith and Suresh Alvey buying out Gavin McGinnis because, like many Gen X white men who started out as having liberal-leaning views, he went down the fascist alt-right rabbit hole and had started making a lot of racist and anti-Semitic statements. The official statement was that McGinnis had left the company in January of 2008 due to, quote, creative differences, and it's better they got rid of him back then because guess what? McGinnis would go on to found Margot. Something racist? Correct. The Proud Boys, to be exact. <laughs> He's Wow. Who could have guessed? <laughs> He's made a number of se- of many more racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, xenophobic, etc. remarks, and once described himself as, quote, an Archie Bunker sexist, and has said that, quote, 95% of women would be happier at home. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Cool, bro. Uh, I hope you like dying alone. <laughs> I don't like I don't think we should give this man too much more airtime, but I no. do think it's ironic that ultimately one of Vice's most famous stories was the coverage they did of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, an event the Proud Boys very famously attended and helped organize. Oh my god. Oh I know. Why? <laughs> it's probably the most or one of the most famous segments that Vice uh, Vice News ever yeah. did. And yeah. it's it's it really captured it and I mean it's won multiple awards on and I'll get into that. But enough about that guy. <laughs> Back mm-hmm. to Vice in the in the late aughts. So in 2007, Vice would go on to launch a ton of sites, online channels, etc. to continue their overall digital media domination on an alternative youth culture. And this included launching several sub-channels dedicated to certain topics, such as Motherboard, which was their tech outlet, Noisy, their music outlet, and would later launch sites around EDM, Culture, Thump, Global News, which was Vice News, um, Food, Munchies, and Sports, Vice Sports. Vice also launched Virtue Worldwide, a creative services agency, to expand their capabilities for work around their platforms. And they also launched the Creators Project, an arts technology site, in 2010 as part of a $25 million investment from Intel. In a very, quote, this is out of we crashed or the dropout moment, Shane Smith basically had the company move from their office in Williamsburg down the hallway to the architecture firm that was across from them in their building so they wouldn't look as poor. This was done because they were meeting with the Intel bigwigs who were talking about giving Vice an insane, allegedly $2 million annual marketing budget, which was much needed by the company that was still running on a very shoestring budget. And employees were told to tone down their attire, conference rooms were installed, and even a Japanese toilet was sent in all (laughs) to impress the team. With the Intel. <laughs> well, I have to ask, since you brought it up, like how long until you think we get like a a, a super pumped or like a we crashed type um, oh. limited series, limited prestige drama about the fall of Vice News? Like it's incoming, well, right? Like the, the writer's I, strike is over. Hopefully SAG-AFTRA is like not far behind, but like, you know, it's got to be out there. Given, I'm not going to name details, but given that a certain prediction I had a year ago is coming at to its one year anniversary this year, and it looks like it may not happen for us in our personal lives. How dare uh, you bring this up? <laughs> I don't know if I can make a, a worthy prediction, but let's, you know what? I'll give it nine months. Give it nine months before we get an announcement. Okay. Uh, nine months to an announcement isn't bad. I mean, yeah. I think I think that that could happen. If it's if it's not already in the works, it's it's gonna come, I think. It has to, because this is how like every every excess of mid to late 2000s hipster culture of trustafarians like like (laughs) it's like a stefan piece like this has everything right moving down Uh, the hallway to look less poor (laughs) (laughs) japanese toilets flown in especially for one person to come visit the office like i think that what really needs to happen usually with these things is like it has to be based on existing ip so someone's gotta write a book you and me or someone's gotta make like a doc not us because that's too much work but someone's gotta do something (laughs) And then then they'll base it off of that. 
it's it's really that because this is where this is where you learn where uh, how money and who invests in your company can really change your identity and ultimately kind of help you lose it along the way. Um, so with this Intel investment came a change in how Vice operated, and some people in the New York office, or sorry, some people in this New York Magazine profile say this was around the time it went from being old Vice to new Vice. The partnership was mutually beneficial. Vice got the budget it desperately needed to expand, and Intel, an older tech brand, got street cred working with an agency that was hip. What this meant was the lines were blurred between what was editorial versus ad copy, and that left a sour taste in a lot of the employees' mouths who had been there during the early days. So, you know, you'd get a Vice story that was sponsored by Smirnoff or whatever, but it was just like, ultimately, a lot of these corporate sponsors came into the fold with the money that was being pumped in. Vice continued to work with more and more established brands over time, including CNN, which they signed a distribution deal with in 2010. And as someone who's now had several established brands sign contracts and deals with you, you'd think as a founder, you'd want to keep people happy. But Shane Smith, controversial, uh, took these people's money and then would go on to make comments that he basically planned on Vice becoming the next, quote, CNN or sorry, MTV, ESPN and CNN rolled into one. With that came Vice's efforts to legitimize itself and move away from the image of just covering uh, up and coming drugs and controversial subcultures. It wanted to really double down on the news and its coverage of current events. They ended up hiring Kate Albright Hanna, who came to work in 2009 after working on the Obama campaign. And in this same New York Magazine article, which was a big part of the source material for, for my notes, she describes that basically they were trying to get away from this image, uh, but it was so deeply ingrained in their culture. She had to sign a, quote, non-traditional workplace agreement, which was later covered by the Daily Beast and the cut during the height of Vice's sexual misconduct allegations. And this agreement, Margot, basically said that I, as a Vice employee, may be exposed to a bunch of stuff that would be inappropriate at any other office, but I don't find that stuff offensive. A very hastily made CYA. Albright Hanna ultimately lasted only a year because that was the tip of the iceberg of what she had to deal with. All of the men at the top of Vice were wearing their little Vice rings, which you may have seen when you saw pictures of some of the founders and writers of Vice. They're like, you know, with the traditional Vice logo. And no one above her really was professional in terms of how to give feedback and how to operate without, you know, working out of a bar at 4 a.m. So she was waking up to these emails that were sent by drunk people or probably people on drugs uh, who around 4 a.m. as she's just like trying to get ready for work and wake up and get her kids to school. And needless to say, she was fed up pretty quickly. And despite this toxic culture, people kept investing in, in vice left and right, kind of almost like passing the buck and thinking the buck will stop at one point. But for the time being, let's keep pumping money here. And the investments were coming in. The deals kept coming through, including one with WME, where that would eventually lead to working with HBO and la launching Vice on HBO in 2013, which was meant to be like a news magazine show a la 60 Minutes. The actual formal Vice News launched that same year and has gone on to win a myriad of awards. So from 2018 to 2021, Vice News received more news and documentary Emmy Award nominations each year than any other organization. And in 2021, Vice News received 23 nominations for news and documentary Emmy Awards, winning four of those. They've won four Peabody Awards for their documentary programs, The Islamic State and Last Chance High in 2015, Charlottesville, Race and Terror in 2017, which we were talking about earlier, and Losing Ground in 2020. That same year, Emily Green of Vice News jointly won the first Pulitzer Prize for audio reporting with This American Life and Molly O'Toole of the Los Angeles Times for their collaboration on The Outcrowd. There are several other awards that Vice has won over the years, but in the last decade, it's also seen its demise, ultimately resulting in Vice filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy earlier this year, which will likely lead to a sale of their assets. In a section I've titled, this was a succession plotline, right? Wait, actually, I think, <laughs> this was, I think this was a season one plotline. In 2013, Rupert Murdoch invested $70 million in Vice Media, which gave him and 21st Century Fox a 7% stake in the company. This also launched the Vice News Channel that same year and consequently set up 34 bureaus globally to really lean into their news coverage. 
The company also eventually received $250 million from TCV, a Silicon Valley venture capital firm, and another $250 million from A&E, yes, that A&E, Arts and Entertainment Channel, which is jointly earned by, owned by Disney and Hearst for an ownership stake of 10%. The investment valued Vice at $2.5 billion because back then we had crazy media conglomerate valuations, and they had stakeholders and investors to respond to, and so the culture continued to change. On top of that, people were still making shit money, which Shane Smith would boast about, saying once that Vice was, quote, a sweatshop for Trustafarians who could afford to work for little pay. According to the New York Magazine article, a senior manager once joked that the company's hiring strategy had a, quote, 22 rule quote, hire 22-year-olds, pay them $22,000 and work them 22 hours a day. And wow. any millennial who has worked in media knows that too wow. very well. Yeah. You just sent me straight back to 2011, like first job. At, that was very, very true. And you don't know any better. And it, yeah, that's you so upsetting. You don't know how to advocate. You don't yeah. know how to advocate for No, yourself. of course not. I, we barely know how to do it now. We're only starting to get comfortable. So the fact that they're like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. Exploit people. <laughs> Tale as old as time, baby. And as soon as you would get to like 26 and realize you were worth more, it was like, well, there's a new crop of hot 22-year-olds right out of college who will do that same job again. Or worse, your company has been acquired so many times you don't even know where you work anymore and the place completely shuts down, kind of much like Vice News or like any other startup. I mean, I've told you I've written for places that do not exist anymore. Yeah. And you will, you'll never recover your writing unless you have it like backed up somewhere. And I know other freelance writers that came up in the 2010s know exactly what I'm talking about. It's it's difficult because you build up this portfolio. You've done all this writing for what was a very lauded publication only for it to shut down. And guess what? No one's going to foot the bill to keep that site back online. Exactly. Yeah. And most of the time you're like crafting drafts within their, however, they um, back things up like their storage system or their iCloud yeah. or whatever. Their and CMS. so you don't even yeah. have, yeah, you don't have access to any of that stuff. I mean, it's. I don't know if it's getting any better or any worse, but it's truly the Wild West. <laughs> it really is. And I think it hopefully, I hope it's gotten better. But yeah, it's just, we just had publications were a dime a dozen 10 mm -hmm. years ago. And that, that in itself is an episode, like another episode, I think. Totally. I mean, VCs just had millions to throw around and be like, I don't know, does like a website for women work? <laughs> like, just Great. really, just add anything. Give money. Give money. Yeah. I mean, the other part of that is like they don't tell you like the success lives and dies by you. Like no pressure. Yeah. You're 20. No pressure. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. So all of this was coupled with Vice relocating their HQ to a space in Williamsburg that had been occupied by three different independent music clubs. When Vice had them vacate the space and build their offices there, it sent a signal to many of their former target audience members, you are no longer welcome. In 2016, their contract with HBO expanded to include Vice News Tonight, a daily news series that would eventually move over to Vice TV, their network that they still have, where it airs today. The Disney investment in Vice continued, and in 2017, Vice secured a $450 million investment from private equity firm TPG Capital to increase spending on scripted programming and ongoing international expansion, and then they were eventually valued at 5.7 billion dollars that year which is oh my god again, these evaluations money, money was cheap i mean these evaluations truly have ruined entire companies because they're they have based on them. bogus numbers from yes. the cloud like things yes. that it's just not real money it's not even real money it's I insane it's I like so for just for the uh, people who are listening, I work a lot for a tech company that does make software for venture capital firms now. And it, what's been really interesting in my role is learning about how these four firms are trying to course correct now for these types of insane evaluations that were, they were giving companies just as early, you know, as recently as like a year or two years ago. <laughs> like they were just astronomical and it was such a rat race to try to get to the next it company that you didn't do any sort of due diligence. You would just say, here, take the money. Here's the check. Goodbye. This was um, happening as recently as like a a year and a half ago, like m yes. one of my bosses left to go work for one of these like unicorns that had like a crazy evaluation. And guess where that website is today? Nowhere, baby. Nowhere. 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 And the pe and people keep falling for this kind of stuff is like so. I know. 
I don't know, perplexing. It's it's like when you get these emails from other companies that are like, protect your account. Don't fall for phishing scams. I'm like, who's falling for these like romance phishing scams? Like, yeah, but there are people that are not as internet and media literate as you and I. It's very true. And so Disney continued to invest in Vice. They gave, uh, they increased their investment. They acquired Fox's stake in Vice when they acquired 21st Century Fox. And as a result, Disney owns, and I don't know if this is still true with like the Chapter 11 bankruptcy, but they owned, uh, up until very recently at least, a 26% combined stake in Vice Media between Fox and A&E. So at that same time, though, Vice's decline began to take place as more and more reports of the toxic work environment, sexual harassment allegations, and just general declines in valuations came through. So in December of 2017, the New York Times reported on four allegations of sexual harassment or defamation against Vice employees, and additionally, 20 women reported experiencing and or witnessing sexual harassment at work. Shane Smith and Sarush Alvi eventually issued a statement to the New York Times saying they had failed to create a safe and inclusive workspace where women at the company could thrive. A month later, Andy Creighton, one of the founders of Vice's UK branch and I believe president at the time, was put on leave because of an investigation into a settlement the company paid out to employee to an employee after she accused him of inappropriate behavior. And there were many more stories that continued to come out. And on top of that, with the stories breaking on Terry Richardson's behavior, people at Vice weren't thrilled the publication had worked with him so much over the years. Later that year, it was reported Vice was going to lay off 10 to 15% of its staff, and that was followed with more layoffs over the years and a number of shutdowns of its child publications. With the damage done and many investors to answer to, Shane Smith stepped down from CEO with, in March of 2018 and was replaced by a and Network CEO Nancy DeBuck. While the company has continued to win several awards and still has its network, um, Financial issues have plagued the company, and on February 24, 2023, Dubuck left as CEO as the company faced these problems with a turning uh, for an annual po- with issues with their annual profits and finding a buyer. And as I mentioned earlier, in May of 2023, they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy and are currently being uh, there are a couple of I believe PE firms looking to buy them out in pieces, but ultimately. Vice is still around, but is really just kind of a fragment of what it used to be. And that is the sad story of Vice. But ultimately, I think the last decade, it did really make an effort to try to legitimize itself outside of just being a publication that covered subcultures, but really did some hard hitting um, journalism. Yeah, I wonder what's going to come and fill the void of these two places that have left us for the great tech bro beyond yeah seriously yeah it's also this is like a problem that has also infected streaming and is the reason for or not the reason but you know all of these are symptoms of the same problem right and like why the wga and sag currently are still on strike so it's an ongoing issue and we'll just have to see how this story develops. <laughs> Stay tuned to the space for more news. Yeah. Well, we thank you guys so much for listening. You know, leave us a five-star review wherever you are subscribed if it has that ability, but only five stars, please. My emotional and mental health is teetering on the brim. So if you're going to leave anything left, less than five stars, like, okay, I, I get it. But like, maybe don't let me know about it or Emily too, for that matter. <laughs> Can't take it. Be safe this Halloween, as I'm sure you are all celebrating this weekend because inexplicably Halloween is on a Tuesday. So if you are passing out candy on the day, enjoy that. If you are partying this weekend, have a great time. We will see you guys next week. Okay. Bye. 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 Don't drink and drive. We love you. Bye. <laughs> Thanks mom. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
it. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.